Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is dedicated to the life and memory of a loyal listener and great friend, Bernie McGrath. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. will come, and then you don't stand a chance to beside us, to rule together, the three of us, because Rhodes, you are dark side now, you are just like me, and Gordon Foley, you talk about me being off the mainstream, I see you carry the old Egyptian ways around your finger. <laughs> this is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today, and powered by our good friends over at Meowbox. Meowbox is the monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for you, the listener of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of our good pals over at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with all that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, and for 175 episodes, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz and John. Today we are joined by the devil himself. That's right, the Taskmaster, the Games Master, the one and only Kevin Sullivan joins today's program. And of course, we know Kevin Sullivan is one of the most highly regarded minds in the history of professional wrestling. You've heard his name mentioned so many times by other people on our show that they've either referenced him as being that a great mind, a great booker, or a one-of-a-kind, truly unique and innovative performer. 
And of course, there's only one guy that we can start with when we, you know, get that discussion off the ground, and that is the legendary late great American dream, Dusty Rhodes. And you're going to hear a lot about the dream very, very shortly. But, John, when we look at all the topics that we had to cover on this 175th episode, that in itself is what I like to call milestone because we've done big shows for 100. We've done big shows for the one-year anniversary. We've done big shows for episode 150. And here we are at episode number 175. And Kevin Sullivan truly is the absolute perfect guest, especially when you factor in what today's date is on your calendar. Yes, Chad, and you said it right. A milestone episode here at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And who better to be that milestone episode 175 than the devil himself, Kevin Sullivan. Now, not only is it our 175th episode... It is also Friday the 13th, and what a perfect guess for, for us, a, a more, I guess you could say, a more a satanic kind of guy, a guy that just fits in perfectly with the Friday the 13th feel, and that is Kevin Sullivan, who obviously was the, the Taskmaster, the Games Master, you know, he was the Devil Worshipper at one point down there in Florida, and obviously in WCW played a lot of the, like I just said, the Taskmaster gimmick and stuff like that. So he does fit in perfectly with the one, uh, excuse me, Friday the 13th, also fits in perfectly with the 175, because we usually like to make our big tentpole episodes, the the legends, the big names. Episode 100, obviously looking back, was The Rock Don Morocco. Episode 150 was James E. Cornette which was great, and then obviously 175 here with the legendary Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin Sullivan, like I kind of alluded to before, he is the devil himself, which is a great, great line used by Dusty Rhodes, who is one of Kevin Sullivan's greatest rivals, and we talk in depth about his feud down there in Florida, and then obviously his history with Dusty Rhodes as well. So it's great that we can talk about Florida and legendary wrestling with Kevin Sullivan, his legendary feud with Dusty and things like that, but it was also great to talk about current booking and his booker's eye, if you will. You know, we were talking about a lot of things current to wrestling, and it's Roman Reigns, and it's uh, when is Seth Rollins coming back, and what would you do with him? So it's a lot of cool conversation, a lot of great stuff, and not just the old school stuff. We start off with a lot of the new school stuff, and it's great to see that Kevin is so smart, and he's so bright, and he's just like, I would do this with this guy and this with that guy. So it's great to have that conversation with him. It's always great to get a mind like his and just kind of pick at his brain and see, you know, ask him, what's wrong with today's wrestling? What would you do? And really, really delve deep into that. So that was just one of our great conversations that we were able to have. To the modern fan, you might remember Kevin Sullivan with the Dungeon of Doom and that being a little more cartoony and being a perfect foil for Mr. Hulkamania himself, Hulk Hogan, as he made his way down to WCW. And the logic behind what the Dungeon of Doom represented by Kevin Sullivan and uh, hearing what he thought, absolutely unbelievable. If you've heard any of his shoots in the past, you've maybe heard a little bit of the story, but he goes quite more into what his thinking was with Hulk Hogan and keeping him as a happy camper. But in that time frame, there was another huge absolutely huge thing that went on in WCW, and that is the storyline between Kevin Sullivan and Brian Pillman. And I think it's going to be highly referenced in the next couple of shows coming up that you're going to hear the line being blurred and what people think about Brian Pillman and the fact that the Booker man himself, Kevin Sullivan, didn't know if it was a work, 
if it was a shoot, if Brian Pillman was really crazy, or if he is the smartest man in the business. But I got to tell you, getting the words out from Kevin Sullivan and getting what his take is on it, it kind of fills in some gaps when you think about that Brian Pillman story. But still, to this day, nearly 20 years later, still intrigues the hell out of a lot of people. His view on the Brian Pillman stuff is some of my favorite stuff that we talk about in the interview. Just absolutely loved it. To a point, it is almost surreal looking back at it to think. You know, that was 20 years ago. Obviously, Brian Pillman has then, unfortunately, has passed on. But you really, really sit back and think about it. Kevin Sullivan was a part of the angle. He was the quote-unquote booker man that, that Brian Pillman was feuding with at that point in WCW. And Kevin Sullivan said he still doesn't know to this day if it was a work or if it was a shoot. And obviously, you know, you hear the story from Bischoff. He thinks it was a little bit of a work, but he doesn't know for sure because you never know what's for sure with uh, Brian Pillman. And I just love getting into that. That was one of the topics, obviously, with the NWO as well, that I really, really, really was just dying to get into. Because that stuff was so intriguing to me then. You thought it was real. Now you still don't know if it's real. And it's crazy to think that, you know, Chad, we've been a wrestling fan for over 30 years apiece. And we're sitting here thinking, was that real? I thought everything was a work. Uh, how could that have been a shoot? Well, Kevin Sullivan makes a great point about it. And it's actually kind of funny. It's And like I said, it's definitely it's almost a surreal thing. He doesn't even know if it was a worker shooting. He was involved with it. And he was the booker of it. And he was a big part of WCW. So who knows? But th that was just some awesome stuff to get out of Kevin. And the thing about Pillman is what a legit genius. Because he was still getting paid by WCW at that point. Then getting paid by ECW as he's making those awesome surprise appearances down there. And he's wrestling the pencil. You know, he's wrestling the booker and stuff. Peeing in the ring and all the other great stuff that he did down there. Then you just throw on top of that that he's getting paid by the WWF and Vince McMahon as well. So maybe he just worked everybody. And maybe he's just a, a legit genius. But I just absolutely loved getting those stories out of Kevin Sullivan. And continuing with the theme of him as a booker, of course... You got to know, since he was a part of the booking team in WCW and really the mastermind behind a lot of what was going on, it is because of Kevin Sullivan that we can thank him for the NWO. That's right. The execution of the NWO came through the brain of Kevin Sullivan. And if not for a little bit of convincing, we may not have actually had the biggest turn in the history of pro wrestling and with today being episode 175 and of course i'm going to mention it again john i'm sure you're going to mention it again 175 fitting for somebody like kevin sullivan because when he tells the story about convincing hulk hogan to turn heel whoo man 175 that uh, i could listen to it all day long yeah you know we're going to mention this again it's a milestone episode huge feather in our cap episode 175 and then a huge feather in the cap to get the legendary kevin sullivan on and, you know i just wanted to mention that one more time but great part about this interview and and one of the just things that i absolutely loved was getting into his time as a booker and how much of a great mind he is for the business and we talk about booking the nwo we talk about scott hall we talk about kevin ash we talk about what it took to turn hulk hogan heel and make him hollywood hogan and how that just flipped the wrestling world upside down. If you think that Hogan, you know, like he claimed, he made the business. He's the Babe Ruth of the business, which I definitely agree with him. It's true. When the business was down, who saved the business and brought it back up again? None other than the heel turn of Hulk Hogan as he, you know, became this creation of his of Hollywood Hogan. 
And Kevin Sullivan behind the scenes played such a huge major role in him turning heel, in the creation of the NWO, in the formation of one of the greatest factions of all time. I'll go out and say it's probably the greatest of all time. You can argue the Four Horsemen as well, obviously. But with the NWO, it completely changed the game, completely changed the business. The NWO is where WWE got its attitude error from. Hogan started, the NWO kicked it off. That heel turn really brought a millions and millions of prime fans back into the business. And then obviously Austin and, and Vince McMahon had their great feud and they you know, set it off into a new stratosphere. But the NWO set it off. It was Hollywood Hogan and it was the brainchild of Kevin Sullivan and Eric Bischoff. But the booking goes to Kevin Sullivan. So there was some awesome stories about that. And WCW at its best was the greatest promotion ever at that point. I mean, you can argue with me, and you're you're just not going to win that argument with me. I just think when WCW was at its best, nothing was better, and Kevin Sullivan was booking it at that point. Just pure genius. The Crow Sting, Piper coming in, Colin Bischoff a liar, the NWO taking over, Hall, Nash, Six was unbelievable. I, everything they did was just gold and just awesome, and I loved everything about the NWO. Also, we do get into... The Hulk Hogan stories, more so with the Dungeon of Doom, which you got to absolutely love. And we do get into some of the, you know, some of the hokiness that happened with the Dungeon of Doom and what he thought about it and what he liked about it and what he didn't like about it. So this is really a feather in our cap and it's really a, quite a coup for us and just an awesome interview and just great to have on the legendary devil himself, the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan. If you've been with us the whole ride, thank you very much. And we hope that you continue to stay and like what you're going to be hearing very soon. Some absolutely gigantic shows on the way very, very shortly. And in typical two-man power trip of wrestling fashion, we're going to have a couple really cool sprinkled-in guests that our fans and our listeners and the people that we speak with are going to absolutely love some of the shows that are coming down the pike very, very soon. And we want to thank everyone who's taking the opportunity to download the show and keep those downloads safely rolling in. We appreciate every single one of them. And with that being said, we also want to thank our good friends over at Meowbox for being today's sponsor. And if you head on over to Meowbox.com and use the code POWERTRIP10, you're going to get 10% off your first monthly box subscription simply by using that code POWERTRIP10. Again, POWERTRIP10. Head on over there. Tell them that you heard it on the two-man power trip of wrestling and get your cat some cool. And I mean, really cool stuff, but I'm not going to tell you about that. Prime time, take them the rest of the way, hit them with a little two-man power trip of wrestling business, and tell them a little bit more about Meowbox. Yes, Meowbox is back. Not only is your Meowbox personalized by hand with your cat's name written on the inside of the box, all of the edible items are made in Canada or the USA, so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. Also, they have a program... Giving program. It's called One Box Can. With every Meow Box purchase, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. Also, and most importantly to me, for picky cats like mine, my cat is Lucy, who has a very special diet. We offer to receive Meow Boxes with absolutely no edible items. They actually replace food and treats with more toys and more surprises. So that's meowbox.com. Please enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription again it's meowbox.com enter the promo code powertrip10 
And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Rastlin Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. We are releasing the latest and greatest clips. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on there, please check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse the Body Ventura, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the phenomenal A.J. Styles, the Demon. Glenn Kane Jacobs, The Lunatic Fringe, Dean Ambrose, Stan the Laird Hansen, and many, many more. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. You can now check us out on Google Play, as well as Player FM and the i95 Sports Network. For any bookings, please hit up our email, bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com for any of your booking needs. Also, check out our store on prowrestlingtees.com. It is new and it is awesome. So please check it out as prowrestlingtees.com. Also, while you're there, check out the Kevin Thorne page as well as the Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff page and the coming soon, the Buff Bagwell page. So please check that out on prowrestlingtees.com. And now, without any further ado, one of the best bookers of all time, one of the best minds ever in the history of the business, he is the man who booked the biggest angle ever in the New World Order. He is one of Dusty Rhodes' greatest rivals. He is the Games Master, the Taskmaster, the Devil himself. He is Kevin Sullivan. Please enjoy. So joining us up on the line tonight is somebody we're absolutely thrilled to be speaking with. It's actually, you know, I have to even be as cheesy as to say it's a great honor. But when you can welcome in somebody who's done it all in the wrestling business, he's been a booker, he's been a manager, of course he's been a wrestler, and when your accolades include a WCW Tag Team Championship reign, an NWA United States Tag Team Championship reign, and of course an NWA Florida World Champion, that's not too shabby of a resume. And with that being said, I welcome in a man who Dusty Rhodes called the devil himself, the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. John, Chad, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for all the nice things you said. And, uh, boy, uh, wrestling business has changed, hasn't it? Oh, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, well, it has I, indeed. And I'll tell you what, it's actually the funniest thing I said to John right before we uh, we called you. I said, you know, I, I wonder where we should start. But I guess the wrestling business today is where I should start and is uh, – from somebody in your perspective, what do you think about where wrestling is headed in 2016? Well, let me first say, you know, I'm not like some of my compadres that they sold out every place, you know what I mean? And the guys were better performers and all that. I think these guys are much better athletes. Uh, train much better than we were. Most of them, you know what I mean? Most of them. But 
I happened to watch the garden uh, the other night, you know, uh, a little later than I, I was out in the boat and I got in late and I flipped raw on. Well, I, I got, it was the second hour, I think I just started, it was when uh, the kid from TNA, AJ Styles, and Roman Reigns had an interview. And here's the world champion who looks like he's going to book, you know, he's going to take Rock's place eventually in the movies. He's a handsome kid. He's come from a lineage of guys that drew money. You know what I mean? The Samoans family are the best. I've always used Samoans. I mean, Antongans. They're great guys to have around and the, the best athlete. There they are, booing the guy. And then they bring this kid in, AJ. Now, he's got a shot at the championship, but he's got beat twice by uh, a guy that, you know, I love Jericho, but he's a part-timer, right? Yep, yep. And they brought him in and beat him twice on TV. Then he beat Jericho later on. But they do the angle where his former friends come down and beat, beat the other guy up, and he's saying, I didn't know anything about it. Well, this is wrestling. You either run and help the guy or run in and kick the shit out of the guy. What is this? He's Switzerland? He's neutral in the war? You know what I mean? I'm I'm not going to sign in declaration of war. No, we're not going to sign in. How about another chocolate? You know, Switzerland, chocolates, you know. Trying to be a little funny because I watched it, and then the next day I knew I was on to cartoons that they're advertising and talk shows that they were advertising for their network. And maybe I was a little tired or something back in the day. I'd say, you know, I, I had too many beers or something, but I, I really couldn't tell where the show ended and the commercials began or what was a commercial and what was the show. It was like Alice in Wonderland to me. Everything was upside down. I just I'm saying to myself and then I watched the work, okay? The matches don't mean a thing. The matches don't mean a thing. They give these guys, we'll say six minutes, right? And their entrances and all that. I mean, and these guys are terrific athletes, but there's no I'm not pissed off at anybody. And, hey, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, they gave away the secret of wrestling, okay? I just happened to see something on YouTube the other day where it was from 1953 with Superman when it was on TV, and the storyline was this India, from India, this Indian uh, was a shooter, and he came over and started beating the pro wrestlers. So they all got together and locked him in a room so he missed the world championship match, right? And Superman comes down and blows the doors open and walled out, and the guy runs out and beats the guys. He's beating the guy. There's this stereotypical promoter with the cigar in his mouth, right? Saying, real wrestling, real wrestling, I love it. 1953. Yeah. So it wasn't, it isn't like they didn't know, but 
God, it was like going to, it reminds me, if you went to the Silence of the Lambs, and you know, the Silence of the Lambs is very much like Jaws, you don't see the maniacal creature for a long time, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. the time Jodie Foster walks down the corridor to see him, my, my, my back of my neck is tingling. And then you see him, and he doesn't blink, and he looks like a crazy nut. And I'm really into it. And then what if they said, cut, and they lit up a cigarette, you know, him, Jody having a coffee. Well, what did you think? Yeah, that was okay, blah, blah, blah. I mean, everybody's moaning, but where have, I'm going to ask you guys, where have they gotten so far off the track, do you think? And when? Oh, because it's so hard to I'm, say. I'm going to just why I said it's so hard to say. You can't okay, here, here's where I'm going to say. Okay, when uh, the NWO was drawing a lot of money, and Steve Austin was drawing a lot of money. You gave, they gave a performance like this is real. You got into it. You know what I mean? You really got into their performance. It isn't like they don't know how to be successful that way. Uh, you know, they got the key to the library to watch those tapes. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I put everything in analogy baseball. I'm a hitter, right? And I go, and I'm in a slump. There's something wrong with my back. My bat speed's down. Well, I can go back to 10 years ago and look at my bat speed when I was hitting home runs. You know what I mean? They got the key to how to turn this thing around in their library. I just don't understand it. I don't understand where they're going. No stipulations mean anything. I mean... Shane McMahon, my hat's off to him, jumping off that. But the whole thing was, if he lost, he didn't get raw, but then his father gave him raw. Situations don't mean anything. Uh, The world champion can be stripped of his belt, you know what I mean? It's just, for me, I think they want to be like the Ed Sullivan show, an entertainment variety show. What do you guys think? No, that's exactly, that's a great analogy of being a variety show because that's exactly what it seems like. You're watching, a, and especially being a three-hour uh, version of a reality, right. uh, a variety show, that you kind of lose base of how, you know, I, I, I like to use the word parody, but in two senses. One, the parody of the booking being that it's just ludicrous, and the parody of the sport or, or professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it, as a being, but... It, it kind of seems like they just can't stay consistent because this is also Vince McMahon who turned wrestling into, you know, quote, the cartoony version. But right. if we put the microscope up against 30 years ago, we would all kind of cut off our right arm to be watching that right now on Monday nights rather than what we're seeing on a regular basis. Right. Do you want me to tell you, here's another analogy of things. Time, okay? If you get time on your side and you have money, you can withstand some weather, okay? Now, 
let's do away with the Boston Red Sox guys, okay? We get rid of them. Then we get rid of the Pawtucket, the triple-A team. Then we get rid of the double-A team, Portland. Then we bring up the Fenway Park, the Salem Red Sox. They're the kids, you know, they're 18, 19 out of high school, one year in college, that kind of thing. The three of us would be sitting there, and I turned to you guys and said, Chad, John, you know that second baseman is a pretty good second baseman. He's only made 17 errors in the first seven games of the season. It's all relative. You know what I'm saying? They've they've got past that people like you and me that was watching this stuff in the era of Austin and Rock. Somehow that's disappeared in their own memory bank, and the thing they're producing now is the Salem Red Sox. You know, there's no big poppy out there. There's no uh, Manny Ramirez. You know what I'm saying? There's yep. a bunch of kids that have a very difficult time because, I mean, how many times can these guys wrestle each other on national TV? You know what I mean? After a while, uh, there was a time there where Orton and Cena, I mean, they had great matches, and I think they're both wonderful talent. But how many times can I watch it? Hmm. You know? Yep. I, I mean, I'd rather even see a squash match after a while. You know, something different to break this mold. So, I mean... That's my thought of it. And here's the horrible thing. There are guys there that probably could work like Ricky Steamboat and Rick Flair in his heyday that we will never see because they don't do that style of wrestling. You know, so, I mean, I don't absolutely, I have no idea where they're going to go either. And with, now I hear that TNA's in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So if we lose that alternative, even though people didn't like it, it was still a place for guys to go. I think that, and I'm not criticizing because they make big, 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 big money, but I don't know if it can last. Hmm. You know, how many, times, how many times can you go to the same town? I mean, even if you only go once a month or once every two months, with the exact same card, just about. You know what I mean? I think that's why they're hiring so many people. They're hoping to fight. It's the old thing, throw something against the wall, hope something sticks. I think that's what they're trying to do right now. Because, God, they have some good talent. I, I really like that Del Rio. I mean, there's so many guys. Brock, Payman, uh, there's so many guys that they got. Dolph Ziegler, there's so many guys they got. But it's so far from being wrestling. I don't know the Miz, but as he opens up the sh- his segment, kissing his wife or girlfriend for like three minutes. I don't need to <laughs> see that, you know. I don't pay to see that. So, so what is, is your guys' take? What is your guys' take? Because you're up from New Jersey, yeah. Northeast, right? Yep. I feel like we... Yeah. You know, we're in our 30s now, so I feel like when we were fans, we were kind of spoiled a bit. And obviously, we had you know great bookers like you booking and the NWO going on. And then we had, even before that, you know, we had the golden era with Hogan taking over right. the world. 
and then we, you know, we had great guys. We had Sting and WCW, had Flair and WCW, and you had, you know, Hogan and Macho Man. Eventually, obviously, them and WCW. But what right. do you think? Like, what do you think they lose it because, you know, where did you learn basically how to be a good booker? And then right now, where do they kind of lose track of basically losing track of how to book? Well, I, I can almost put my finger on it. Okay, you know, here's the thing: when you're booking. Uh, everybody has a different style and nobody has the answer because if you did, you turn to page 52 and sell out, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things you can't do that I learned, uh, I, I've never seen it done either. You can't take Steve Austin as he was that killer guy and then switch him heel where he's playing the guitar singing to Vince. Do you remember that? When he became a heel, and he was like a chicken shit heel? Yeah, oh yeah, very weird. Okay, yeah, so the whole started there. Because he was your top guy. He, he didn't make a mistake with the intercontinental champion or, you know, the North American champion. You made the mistake with the big guy. It was like Goldberg. I saw, I, I'm, make no bones about it. I remember uh, Austin, okay, with Goldberg. But I didn't let him talk because he couldn't talk like Austin. So I'm not going to put him out there and have him exposed being naked. So I made him a killer where he couldn't talk. Well, after I made him a killer and I left, he ran out of the ring from Booker T when they turned him heel. I'm not saying you can't turn your number one babyface heel, but he has to work as vicious as he did when he was a babyface. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just yep. because, okay, I'm vested in this guy. I spend some time. I get off on him, tackle a guy, and I get off of Austin drinking a beer. The next week I turn it on and they're both chicken shits. That just doesn't work. And I think what happened was when they got on that line of thinking, they got further. It's like a uh, snowstorm. They got the car stuck. So they start walking in the snowstorm and they've walked away from where the car was. They, oh my God, what should we do now? Well, we can't find the car. Let's just keep on walking. Maybe we'll get lucky. <laughs> They've been walking for a while trying to get lucky. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, and they so they have the answers obviously because they drew a hundred one thousand people, but they have to go back and bring the older guys back. The younger guys never got a rub from Sting. You know, Sting's retired now. He never gave a younger guy a rub that he got from Flair. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of guys that uh, the NWO, they great friends of mine, but they really never gave the rub to the other guys because they retired earlier. I mean, nobody got, no young kid has gotten a rub that I know of. You know what I mean? I mean, look at Rock. He comes back and beats a guy in six seconds. 
uh, I just, there are some things I don't understand, and maybe that it's passed me by, but I know what I like, and what I like watching, you know, I like pro wrestling, and I want to see it back. Us too, for so, sure. Okay. So when you, when you learned, you know, booking and, and like the philosophy, and you kind of what we were mm-hmm. just talking about there, was that learned from like a guy like Eddie Graham, or was that kind of Dusty I, Rhodes? Or, like, who did you learn? You know, from? I, I actually learned from Eddie, but I also learned from Vince Senior. I was lucky oh. enough for him to take some uh, notice of me. And one time I was looking at his book, and he came in the room and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I don't know how you book three guys at the Madison Square Garden before they ever come in." and two guys, a guy for two shots, and then a guy for one shot. He said, I get a formula. You want to see it? And I sat down, but my real experience was with, was with Eddie. I was a young boy, and Mike was my tag team partner. And uh, I had a chance to learn from the guy that's supposedly the best. So it was just good timing for me, I guess. What were some good takeaways that you took from him as far as booking that you used when you became a booker? Well, his main thing was make it logical and try to keep it as much as a sport as you could. That didn't mean you couldn't have wild matches like uh, Terry Funk and uh, Cactus Jack. Underneath that, you better have some wrestling. First of all, A, you don't want to burn out Cactus and Terry's match. You know, they've done, the other guys have done stuff before Cactus and uh, Terry work. You want to give the people uh, like a circus too. I was the first one to bring luchadors into this country. And I was the first one, I made the Cruiserweight title. Before that, it was a junior heavyweight. I hated the word junior. So, I mean, Eddie's thing was, it's a circus. If you don't like the clowns coming out of the little car, you you may like the high-wire act. And if you don't like that, you're going to like the end because Gunther Gable Williams is going to put his head in the lion's mouth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you got to give the people... I mean, there are, there are people that go to wrestle matches... And their favorite wrestler is somebody that's really obscure. You know what I mean? But there's something for everybody. That is true, and that kind of makes a great show when you know you got this guy in the mid card is good, you know, opening act is good, the main event is good. But when the booking is solid, and obviously, you know, you said Eddie Graham was a big part of your kind of learning curve and learning a lot about the business. But what was it like down there in Florida? Because that seemed like a hotbed of a territory, obviously, when Eddie was running it. And you're down there, you know, with the devil-worshipping stuff, and you're feuding with the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, it was... Uh, if you go back and look at the cards, it was everything that if I wrestled Dusty or uh, some blackjack, uh, they were wild matches, blood and gore. But there was so many solid talent that went through there. Ron Bass, Barry Windham, Scott McGee, Tony Charles, Les Thornton. 
Billy Robinson, uh, Mike Graham, I could go on and on and on because Eddie made everybody pull together. And then on Tuesday nights, no matter who was the booker, Eddie was the booker Tuesday because that was Tampa. And Eddie booked that card and he booked it like he would give you a finish that you wouldn't talk to someone because it was so long. He made you think. He made you a better performer. And you, you, you down there, because they wanted you to think and make you a better performer, you talked about it in the car for 300 miles. Do you know what I'm saying? So it was, uh, it was a hotbed to learn at. And everybody there, not everybody, but a lot of people that had come through there were former bookers or own territories or whatever. So it was very, very, uh, it was right time. It was the right time, right situation. Now, where did all that, you know, the devil worshiping stuff, the army of darkness, that all that <laughs> yeah. dark cool stuff, especially for that time period, was a little bit shocking. Ken, where did that yeah. all come from? Uh, I never said the word devil in the whole time I ever worked there. It worked anywhere. Dusty called me, you know, the devil himself, but the thing was, I had been to uh, Asia quite a bit with Mark Lewin, Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, so I picked up on Buddhism, Hinduism, I went to uh, bunch of Buddhist temples and I went to cave temples in Nepal, Malaysia. I like history and I like to go places and Hong Kong, uh, New Zealand, Singapore, Samoa. And we're talking 25 years ago when it was really kind of backwards still. So I had that in my head and I also had MTV had just started, right? So Mm -hmm. Billy Idol, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, Everything was dark and heavy at the time. The slasher movies were out, you know what I mean? And I said, this will work right now, I think. And especially, look at Michael Jackson's biggest hit was Thriller. He turns, Michael Jackson turns into a werewolf, you know what I mean? Uh, If you ever watched the video. uh, So that was the time, and I was the first guy to really push the envelope. So. Yep, definitely. You were way ahead of your time. Did yeah. people kind of think that you were actually into that stuff? Because that was absolutely, absolutely, sentence. absolutely. People always, and I mean, some people still, uh, you know, say stuff that they believe in it. I mean, I am an Irish Catholic from South Boston, so. I don't think that would work. My mother would beat the devil out of me. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to put my mother over, you know? So, you know, yeah. we actually, we had the opportunity to speak with Dusty uh, just before he passed away, literally a couple wow. of days before he passed away. And the focus of the conversation was the Florida Territory because they were planning the big reunion uh, that Joe Malenko was putting together you know, almost a year ago at this point. But Dusty talking about how, you know, the American dream was the character or the, the gimmick or whatever, the person that that territory needed at that point. Did it seem like he was the perfect foil for you, or was, did you feel like with 
what you had as you know the the uh, the Satanist, the devil worshiper, that you really could have worked with anybody that was put into that babyface spot. Well, Mulligan was the guy that I really got me over, but Dusty, it was you know, yin and yang. It was black and white. It was night and day. We were polar opposites. And I said that on my interview. I said, you know, you guys are believing this American dream. There's no more American dream. You're out of work. You got four kids. Things are looking bad. And he's telling you, you know, stay in there and push. I'm telling you, there's nothing you can do. The end is near. You know, I'm doom and gloom. And he's uh, talking about, you know, after the matches, going to uh, some cowboy redneck bar, having a few beers. You know what I mean? So it 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 did. It was like anything else. It was just perfect timing, and I had the best baby faces in the world to work with. I had Dusty, I had Blackjack, I had Barry, I had Mike Graham, I had Superstar Billy Graham. I mean, I wrestled them, and especially Blackjack, Barry, and, and Dusty for four years every night in some kind of stipulation and singles tags or six bands, you know. So Oh yeah, without a doubt and actually yeah. and of course, you know, we just lost back Blackjack uh, about a week and a yeah. half ago. And again, yeah. you know, it's another huge loss to professional wrestling. Uh and you know, he was very sick for, for a little while there towards the end of his life. But working with him, uh we spoke with Bill Eady who put him over as being, you know, really the best big guy that you could have worked with and talking about having steel cage matches in 100-degree buildings, but I'm sure working with him, you know, down in Florida, that uh, Blackjack, like you said, a great baby face, but I'm sure one hell of an opponent. Oh, yeah. When I first, uh, my first, when I went back to Florida, see, I had been a baby face in my grand's partner. And when I went back to Florida, half, I had been a heel in Atlanta. So half the baby faces were saying I was no good. And then Mike and Steve Kern and that group were saying I was a good guy. So when I finally turned heel against Barry, I did it on TV. We went 54 minutes, and I kicked him in the face. Then I took the belt and knocked Mike out with the belt, and then I knocked Barry out. So we came to Orlando for my first match and as a Stone Cold Heel, and I wrestled Blackjack, and Dusty said, well, let's have a wild match, and uh, Jack, you take a quick one on him. And Jack said, if we're going to go with him, let's go with him. And Jack said, not only am I putting him over, I want Dusty, and Dusty was the booker, but Jack could talk to me. He said, why don't you, Dusty, hit the ring? People think it's going to be a comeback, and let him stop you with the spike, and we'll send Barry and let him have the three of us lay in. Well, I did, and it got me over, and we were in business. So Jack really helped me. He really helped me. Uh, he was uh, just, you know, a mountain of a guy, and just to, to watch yeah. some of those clips. And, you know, it was cool. I think about 10 or 15 years ago, a couple of the Florida uh, tapes made their way onto a DVD before WWE acquired the library. So we got to see, you know, some of these uh, outside of Florida places, you know, like up where we are yeah. you know, in the Jersey area. We got to see some of the uh, the intensity, and that's one of the other things we spoke about with Dusty was just the absolute intensity of the crowds and that everybody was into every single thing, and you were really 
invested and did they really buy into you and really hating your guts when you turned heel? Oh yeah. I mean, I, the thing was I rode to the Mark and I were together too down there and we rode to the towns with our robes on and just shorts, no shirt, just our robes. I mean, we went grocery shop shopping like that. I mean, we lived a gimmick. So, yeah, and that kept us, and we wouldn't let people see us, you know what I mean? We didn't go out and watch the matches at night going back from whatever to Tampa. You know, the boys would have a beer stop that they'd go to, and people would see them, me and Mark, if we were going to have a beer, we'd, go, we'd drive past it and go someplace else. We'd never let people see us. So there was the mystique, you know, they never saw us talking or anything like that. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's so awesome. That's one of my favorite things about that Florida territory is uh, is how much the fans really bought into it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you throw in a voice like Gordon Sully, but we've mentioned Barry Windham oh, yeah. here two or three times already. And Barry yeah. was like the can't-miss prospect almost coming out of that Florida Absolutely. territory. And, and they were like a feeder almost at that point, right? Wouldn't you consider Florida to be like a feeder almost? That even a guy like Lex Luger who came through there and and was built up, but Barry specifically, what was it about him that you know you think people really took to the actual the quote white meat baby face at that point? That that he you hit it on the head. He was six feet six, handsome, blonde flowing hair, hair, built but not like a bodybuilder, like a football. You know, like a wide receiver. And if you ever look on YouTube, watch a match with him and Flair from uh, Orlando. I, I've seen the one from Orlando. But I would work with Barry, and when you threw over the top rope, you know, without the referee seeing you, Barry would sail over the top rope and wouldn't touch anything, and he, he would hit the ground. Barry was going to be the world heavyweight champion. And to this day, I don't know what happened because there was a period when I left WCW when they were first uh, starting with Herd. There was a period I went to Japan for probably almost three years. And I thought Barry would have, you know, beaten Rick and gone on and, you know, become the world champion. I, he went to St. Louis and won the uh, Missouri title. And that Missouri title was, you won that right before you won the world title. And even when Backlund won the WWE title, he won during that period. He went to St. Louis. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, St. Louis was only one town. It was a territory in itself of one town. And, uh, Back and won the, that belt. Barry had won the belt. I don't know if there was a falling out somewhere with with Barry and Jack, uh, with the NWA members. I don't know, but he never <clears throat> got that belt, and he should have. Absolutely. He was a uh, yeah. great, great talent, almost like a, a can't-miss talent. But, you know, you, were, you just mentioned uh, Japan, and I just had to get it out there because 
I was very curious about your run in Japan because you had some legendary feuds over there. Obviously, in SMW, uh, Onita really, really sticks yeah. out. But, you know, what was it like over there in, in Japan? Because you hear so many stories about those crazy crowds for SMW. Yeah, I mean, it had changed so much for me. From I started with Baba, and, uh, you know, I went to Wings FMW and ended up back uh, with New Japan, and I ended up back with Baba for a shot with New Japan. And it really changed before the people, you know, would just clap. You know, there wouldn't be anything. You do a big high spot, nothing. Then uh, later on, you do a move, and they would clap. You know what I mean? It was like uh, nothing was happening. Then when I got to SMW, the people, it was like they had seen ECW because that's all FMW was was a ripoff of ECW, and they became part of the act like the ECW fans did. And what was it like working with Onita? Because, I mean, that, I mean, for, you know, the, the standard of, especially at that time, known as a little bit, almost like, you know, a Terry Funk in that aspect or, or a Cactus Jack with that crazy style. kind of fits in perfectly with you. Yeah, uh, it, it got to be, in my estimation, it got too much, you know what I mean? It got too violent. It got to be where nothing meant anything, I mean, glass thrown in people's faces. Yeah, you can do that if that's the only match you got. You don't have... And I mean, those guys over there, the Japanese boys, were crazy about cutting themselves. They would use surgical blades. And I mean, I I, I wrestled uh, Tazen Goto one night and he had a surgical blade and I had blood in my boots. It was splashing around, you know what I mean? And I was there with the original Sheik. So, you know, the Sheik and Sabu and me were there together at one time. So you can imagine that feel. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, here's the funny thing about the, the two. You're asking about the fans. They were so afraid of the Sheik, they would run up and try to touch him. Because in Japanese culture, if you touch something you're afraid of, you get good luck. Well, they go into the ring. I'd go out with me and Sabu to protect them, make sure no one had a knife or something, because everybody tried to run up and touch him. We'd have to push him back. But when he came out of the door, he would chase everybody out of the audience, out into the street. They would knock all their chairs down. You know, it would be like 3,000 chairs on the floor and balcony around. Those chairs would be set back up before the guys got back from the outside. It was the damnedest thing I ever saw. But you're saying mm-hmm. about the uh, the people, they got into it too, like FMW. I mean, it was like that time that Onita jumped off. I, th- I think it was in Osaka. He, he won a match, and he went outside and jumped off into the water. And the people, he jumped off a bridge, you know. It wasn't a tall bridge, but it was about, 30 feet, and then people were jumping in the water. Well, lo and behold, they need to get sick from the water being contaminated, you know. So hmm. crazy times, yeah. Definitely. And then you just said yeah. about, uh, 
you know, FMW being a lot like ECW, and obviously you spent a little bit of time there. Right. What was your time like in ECW? I feel like maybe Paul Heyman learned something from you. Well, I started Paul. Yep. I started Paul, and I gave him the phone. Hmm. Paul came to me. He didn't have a job. I gave Paul a job, gave him the suit. You know, I, he was wearing sneakers. I said, take the sneakers off. You're not David Letterman. I gave him the phone. Yeah. Paul, all ECW was, was a glorified and glorified copy of Championship Wrestling from Florida. Uh, Paul had Shane Douglas as the world champion. Eddie always had a wrestler as the world champion. There was blood and guts. There was blood and guts in Florida. So it was, Paul has done a wonderful job, you know. He's a big, big deal. Now, where did you actually, you started him, was it Florida, or did you start him when he kind of made his way to Memphis? No, I started him in Florida. He had never worked. Oh, okay. Yeah, he came down with a wrestler called Tombstone. I started Paul out, yep. And his first, think, what, go ahead. I was going to say, what did you think about him at first, and then what did you think about him uh, when you, you know, kind of met him years later in ECW? Well, he, I had him with... Uh, his wrestler that he managed was Tombstone, and I had Scott Hall pop Paul every night, pop him off the apron, I mean lay it in, because I want to see if he'd take it. He wouldn't do that today. They'd be saying that was uh, abuse. But anyway, I'd pop him off the apron, and Paul stuck it out. After a week, I told Scott, don't do that anymore. And Yeah, I, I, th- I think the world of and obviously, you know, in ECW, you know, obviously they, they took some stuff from Florida and took some stuff from some other places, which, I, you know, I guess in hindsight was a pretty good idea from him because he caught kind of, a you know, a good win there. And he got a lot of positive publicity for ECW. But what was it like when you were there, you know, you're fighting crazy guys like uh, Public Enemy or you even had a little mini feud with, you know, the legendary Abdul the Butcher? Yeah, I work with Abdul. I work with the Sheik. I didn't get to work with Public Enemy, but me and Paul's worked with the uh, Harris Boys. We worked with a couple other people. Uh, to, you know, Terry, it was a tag match. It was me and uh, me and uh, Stan Hansen. No, me and Abdullah against Hansen and Terry Funk. So, I mean, I got to work some pretty cool matches, yeah. And former ECW tag team champion with a guy who's very familiar, you know, to a lot of uh, ECW fans, and that is Taz. But before he was yeah. really the Taz we knew about, he was Taz Maniac. Yeah. I mean, I remember Taz when he used to work for Century Wrestling Alliance up there in Boston for Tony Rumble. So, I mean, I saw Taz grow into what he was, him and Tommy Dreamer, so that's cool. What do you think about the transformation from the Tasmaniac gimmick to, you know, to the real-life Taz? Well, he didn't know where Tasmania was, so just being the real-life Taz was better than not knowing where. <laughs> and, I, and I always kid him about that. No, I think he evolved, and it was the right thing to do, you know what I mean? I think he evolved. So I think Paul helped him with that. 
definitely, definitely true. And, you know, you didn't stick in ECW for all that long. I mean, a couple of years, but in, in hindsight, you know, the, you're probably your longest run was probably WCW. And yeah. you, know, you kind of, you know, you worked there first with NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions. But what was it like then at that point with Jim Crockett Promotions? Because you said, obviously, Jim Hurd was there at that point, and he was kind of a disaster. But, you know, Ted Turner yeah. buys it. And what was that, that whole influx like? Well, um, I'm sure you were there. Until uh, I'm gonna, and people cannot get a clear shot. But until Eric came in there, it was a revolving door. There was no stability. Nobody knew anything. But Eric was uh, willing to learn something. You know what I mean? And he did. He did. He listened. And he did a good job. He definitely did. And obviously he kind of shaped where uh, WWF ended up going for a little bit because obviously the NWO kind of led to a lot of uh, WWF storylines of Vince versus uh, Stone Cold and things like that. But, you know, what were your thoughts on Bischoff's direction with where he was headed when he first started with bringing Hogan. Were you a big part of bringing in Hogan in that direction no, of the company? No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't the, book, the booker then. Uh, it was a crazy thing. Rick Flair brought him in. And I had known Hulk when he was in Tampa, but I, I knew him passing through. But uh, he was the one that said, Eric, uh, when we went going head to head, he said, I think you need to make this guy the booker. And uh, they made be the booker before the first Nitro. So that's how they got that through Hogan. So, I mean, it wasn't that I had anything to do about bringing Hogan in, but I think no matter what some people say, at that time he was Hulk Hogan. Do you know what I mean? So yep. it was a positive thing. And, uh, you know, then Savage came well, he, Vince thought those guys had been played out. He didn't know they had a run left in them. And he let Hall and Nash, everything just lined up for us perfectly. I mean, I had, you know, the 1927 Yankees. I couldn't miss, you know what I mean? Mm. I couldn't miss. I had the best talent in the country. From top to bottom, you could have flipped it around, and it didn't matter. We were going to draw the same amount of money. At that point, WCW was on fire, and I yeah. loved WCW, especially at that point. And the booking was on point. Obviously, like you said, you had Murderer's Row there. You had a great lineup. Yeah. But yeah. what was your actual history with the Hulkster? Because, you know, you said you knew him for a long time. You know him from Tampa Day. Yeah. I knew him before he was uh, Hulk Hogan. We used to go see him play at the Rocket Lounge. And then... Uh, one time I was passing through Pensacola and I worked the bait up there. Actually, they sent me up there to work in Dolphin from Florida because our TV bled into there. And I had worked there years ago as a babyface, so now it kind of helped them too because it was my. I just turned heel and I saw Hogan up there and he said, Oh, I don't think I want this. I said, Believe me, you want it. You got to stay in this. You're going to make a lot of money. And then, boom. Next thing I know, Hulkamania's alive and running well. And obviously, you know, in WCW, you played a big role in Hulkamania, you know, kind of staying stable as far as him being a face aside. 
because you know at first you had the three faces of fear you had yourself the butcher and avalanche right. and, and then obviously right. you know you had the dungeon of doom right. so what was the thought process was that was it to get Hogan kind of like comfortable with him being a WCW what was what was the role of, of you guys at that point okay my role was the night Hogan to turn heel the, the night before that, he stayed at my house because I made him turn heel. I had talked him into it. He hmm. trusted me. I knew in my head, and this is no disrespect for anybody in the dungeon, uh, uh, Three Faces of Fear. We were not what I was selling. I was selling reality. I, for Hogan to get him comfortable, he wasn't going to work with Eddie Guerrero or he wasn't going to work with Nash or he wasn't going to work with this guy or that guy. He picked his people. So I said to myself, well, let's go with this. It's a little bit cartoonish. You know, I was a bit more serious, but I went that way because I wanted to gather his support. And after I when the National Hall started to come and things started to change, I was saying to him, it's time to change. And he was saying, no, I can't change. I've been saying, take your vitamins. I said, that's the gimmick, brother. You've been lying all along. Let's do this. And he had enough faith in me that we turned him heel and business blew up. Now, that's just great because obviously everyone kind of remembers that moment. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, Hulk Hogan turned heel. I mean, it was major news. It was all over the place. Everyone was shocked. I mean, anybody who ever watched wrestling kind of was saying, oh, my God, I can't believe Hulk Hogan is a bad guy now. Can you believe the impact that had on on not only wrestling but pop culture in general? Yeah, and I've thought about this with social media like it is today it would have been a thousand times bigger. It would have went around the world instantaneously. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was, it was a shocking thing to people. It would be like seeing uh, Mickey Mouse, you know, uh, stealing your girlfriend's purse. You know what I mean? That's what it was. It was a cartoon character that you believed in that all of a sudden... He was a no good son of a gun, you know. How did you actually end up talking him into it? Because it seems like he would be against the idea at first because he was so settled in the role as, you know, Hulkster, Hulkamania, and everything else. There was a couple of nitros before, and you can look it up. When he comes out, it's in Chicago. He's got a black bandana on. That's funny because. Went to court in a black bandana, but he has a black bandana on. He's all dressed in black. And the whole building is booing him. Now, they started to boo him all over. But this was Chicago where he was really over, and they really were booing him. And Mean Gene saved it. He, he said, you can hear the solemnness from the fans tonight going woo while they're going boo. And he came back, and we went in the room, and I said, do you get it now? Do you believe me now? This hmm. has been going on for months, and you haven't listened to it because you didn't want to listen to it. And the night before he turned, I mean, people were calling him, 
you know, cell phones were in, and they would call him. I took a cell phone from I had a three-bedroom house. His agent was with me. I put a hunk in one bedroom. I made the agent sleep on the couch. I wouldn't give him a bedroom, you know what I mean? Also, because I didn't want him talking to Hulk, you know what I mean? So uh, that's how that happened. And do you think that the NWO would have worked with any other guy but Hulk turning heel as a leader? Because I feel like, they, you know, there's always rumors like, oh, Sting could have been the guy. But I don't think it would have no. worked as well if no. it wasn't the impact of Hogan. It had to be a WWF guy because that's what the whole angle was. People believed that WWF was coming in on us. And he was the biggest thing WWF had had. And it just worked perfectly. And those guys, all Nash, worked terrific with him because they were so cool and hip. They could have blown by Hulk, but they said, oh, we're going to do business with them. So, I mean, there was some tension before when the Hulk was a baby face, but when he turned tail, those guys did the right thing and did business. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the, when you think about the NWO and the impact they had in the business, it was just crazy because basically the business uh, down point, Hogan turned to you, the NWO set it off, and boom, wrestling took off again, basically because of Hogan turning heel, that angle, Hall and Nash was like that perfect mix, and then you throw the Crow Sting in there as the perfect, you know, foil for Hogan. Do you think that those vignettes that they did, you know, was that just so perfect? You know, they're black the and black white. black and white so different. Yep. The black one was absolutely, absolutely. And that was all in Nashville Spring. And they could have buried Hogan on that, that because I was there uh, watching it being produced. And there was a lot of times they had to redo them to make Hulk look cooler. Hmm. So National Hall really helped him. Yeah. Which is great because, you know, Hulk kind of makes the whole thing blow up and become so popular. But what, right. was your, what was your kind of idea with the NWO? Because so many people were saying, oh, they, they don't lose. They haven't lost in a while. They, they're killing the roster. But they really weren't. It kind of made you want to watch more and more to see Hogan get his comeuppance, to see Hall and Nash get beat up. Yeah. Wasn't that kind of the philosophy? Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a booker that believes in – there's knights and there's dragons. And you can't be a knight if you're slaying salamanders. You gotta kill the fire breathing dragon. And you gotta get heat. And someone has to be sacrificed. So you gotta get it so hot where the people watching it say, God damn, they won again. And when it was time, Nash and Hall and, and Kid and Hogan went to Charlotte against the uh, four horsemen. They all laid down in the middle of the ring and got beat by the guy's finishes. They did the right thing. It was that I didn't want them to lose until it was time. And with them winning, how do you say, oh, let's beat them. One time, Eric said, let's beat one of them. And I said, come here, we're going to walk out here. And it was in Des Moines. I said, this is Des Moines, Iowa, and there's over half a million dollars in this house. I don't think anybody needs to be beat tonight, especially hmm. the NWO. You know what I mean? People were just coming in, and they were the first anti-heroes along with Austin, you know? 
So it was a completely different attitude. Yep, it was the anti-hero who was kind of rooting yeah. for the bad guys. It was yeah. the NWO shirts that, you know, a million times, you know, a million people had. Everyone was wearing the NWO shirts. Can you even believe the popularity of, of the shirts and the merchandise at that point? No, I couldn't. You go through any mall and there was NWO shirts, there were Hogan shirts, there were Austin shirts, there were Goldberg shirts. You know, there's maybe a few paid shirts. There was... I mean, there were so many shirts, and it was on the rack, and everybody, I, I was, you know, I, I lived in the Keys full-time, and now I live between the Keys and up here. Uh, so when you go down the Keys, everybody would have had a T-shirt with a wrestling T-shirt. It really blew me away, you know? So pretty well... Yeah, definitely. Definitely yeah. wild stuff. What did you think about the backstage kind of aspect of WCW at that point? Was everybody kind of getting too big I, of an ego? Well, uh, yeah, they never should have had the boss being a performer, meaning Eric. Hmm. Once you stop being a performer, you've crossed the line of being a boss. You know what I mean? Yes. So, you know, you become the guy's friend and he wants a raise. You become the guy's friends and he wants an extra week off when he should be at TV. So that was a difficult process, yeah. Hmm. Now, with WCW, I, I kind of want to rewind a little bit to the Dungeon and Doom because we only talked about it briefly but i got to talk about something that, you know, people love and, and they go back and watch. And some of it's kind of funny and hokey and cheesy, but some of it's actually pretty good. You tell yeah. me what you think. Those those vignettes with the master, you know, screaming yeah. Sullivan, Sullivan, and you running through, uh, you know, the woods and yeah. basically you and the master creating the Dungeon of Doom. What did you think about those vignettes? Okay. You know what I told you about Hogan, right? Yep. I mean, I did that for Hogan because I was a serious wrestler up until that point. Mm-hmm. But Curtis was a favorite of Hogan's. And he had said to Hogan, I want to walk the Milky Way one more time. Curtis was set. And he was huge. So he came. Hogan got him to come and he got him to do all those things. So I said to myself, well, if I'm going to do it, let's go back in time and become Buck Rogers instead of Star Trek. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I took the the Ming character from Ming the Magnificent, you know what I mean? The Merciless, mm-hmm. the, Ming, the Merciless from uh, Buck Rogers. So I was, I knew what to do, you know what I mean? I made it as, as funny as I, I'm not as funny, but as lighthearted as I could because everything was so serious else on the program. So it was a little bit of comic relief. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Did you enjoy doing the, the um, Taskmaster gimmick? Oh, I loved it because, I loved it because of Curtis. Curtis was the one that introduced Mark on the big, uh, Entrance we did for Mark was probably one of the first videos ever in wrestling. I'm not going to say it's the first, but it was one of the first. 
and Curtis narrated it. And uh, Curtis was one of my favorites. I was an I, I, I idolized Curtis, and I he was a wonderful guy. And obviously, you know, with the Dungeon of Doom, you did those hokey skits and, and kind right. of you know some of that cheesy stuff. But then a very serious angle came above, you know, from it. Where did Paul White, a.k.a. the Giant, come from? Because, you know, obviously they were teasing that he was Andre's yeah. son. Yeah, he he came from Chicago. I think he had played some semi-pro basketball, and he got introduced by a guy that used to be his manager to Hogan, and Hogan saw money in him, and... Uh, that's what Hogan did. He kind of indicated that he was Andre's son. Very interesting storyline. You could uh, obviously, you know, he's seven two, five hundred pounds, whatever. He was a gigantic guy. But did you yeah. think that you could mold him into becoming kind of what he is now? Because he's still wrestling twenty years later. Did you think that when you originally saw him, that you could mold him into you know future world champ? I never thought he'd last this long, and good for him. He's done a wonderful job. I never thought, you know, there's only one Andre. I was lucky enough to work with him. Uh, Paul has done a great job, and it's, I'm so happy that his career has done so well. Definitely. He's uh, he's kind of made a pretty damn good career. Obviously, 21 yeah. years now, I believe, he's been in the business, so pretty mm-hmm. damn good. But, you know, Fall for All 95 is kind of when he his, was his uh, coming out party, but that was basically when you got to wrestle Hogan for five minutes after the Dungeon of Doom lost to the you know the, the Hulk Hogan, the Sting, Savage, Luger team. What was you know what was like the end game there? Was it just did Hogan's going to beat you up and then boom he's going to yeah. start feuding with you know quote unquote Andre's son? Yeah, we just wanted to again make him secure. He was the one that said he wanted to beat me. He wanted to get those wins. You know what I mean? He. He was a little intimidated. You know, he came off of doing that Thunder in Paradise where he had lost a lot of weight. He wasn't as big as the other guys. His knee was killing him. He was bent over. So uh, it was his idea to beat me, and I gladly did it. I did it more than once, so, you know, I did hmm. it for quite a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Hogan was a huge, huge part of WCW, and your booking was obviously a huge part of WCW, and, and there was obviously, you know, there was the Alliance and Hulkamania, you guys and the Horsemen kind of teamed up for a while, but there was the feud with Brian Pillman that even Eric Bischoff kind of teased that it was legitimate and it was real. What was the real true story behind you and Pillman? Was that real, you know, the whole Booker Man thing? Well... I always tell people this. One of the biggest compliments I ever got, Kevin Nash told me that all the guys from WWF got in a hotel and bought that uh, pay-per-view to watch that match. Hmm. I'm just going to say this. Brian Pillman would have been the greatest booker of all time. There wouldn't have been a feud that mattered except Pillman and Austin, we missed that. He was a great guy, a great talent, but an incredible mind. The wrestling business would have been different if he stayed alive. Uh, you know, I'm, I really like Brian, and I miss him to this day. 
he was almost underrated by a lot of people because he was so damn good and not only wrestling but talking and like you say he got a great mind for the business but yeah. what was the deal with that match you know where he walks out of that match Bischoff was kind of saying it was kind of arranged beforehand it almost seemed like it was one of those things in wrestling where you can't identify or not if it was real which is great but what was right. the real story behind him walking out on that match because then you end up mm-hmm. wrestling on the real story was uh and I don't know what the real story is because Brian was working everybody. At one time, he was getting paid by three different companies. He was getting <laughs> paid by us when we supposedly fired him, right? Right. He was get, getting paid by ECW. And WWE was giving Paul money to give him two so his payoff was bigger. So do I know what really happened? I don't know if Brian was working me too, but I know that when he hit the ring, I did blast him, and he left the ring. Did he do that because he didn't want to go any further in the match and he wanted to slip out with him still being credible or, you know what I'm saying, without mm-hmm. it, it being scathed? And he walked out and made a lot of money for a long time until he got that horrible accident. Hmm. Yeah. One of those things in wrestling, I guess, of saying, just sitting there like, wow, that was awesome. Was it real? Like, what the hell's going on? And then he's really gone, right. so you think it's real. But even Bischoff was quoted as saying, he's not even sure. And, you know, he's the guy saying that. Yeah, and I'm in the ring with him, and I'm not sure because I'm not sure if he worked me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I See, because he was supposed to come back. You get where, where I'm yes. at, guys? Yep. yep. He was supposed to come back. It was like he was being chastised, right? He was sent to ECW. We were still paying him because he had, like, I want to say three months left on his contract. And he was every day talking to Eric Green, negotiating his contract. And every day, Paul was calling WWE and saying, I'm not sure if he's going back or not. And they would, you know, even though he's on the contract, they were talking to him. Each time they talked to him, the price went up and up and up. You know what I mean? (laughs) So whatever happened in that ring, I'm still not sure what happened. He called the whole thing. So uh, I don't know. But only Brian would have been able to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, what a businessman. What a genius. Like a mad genius for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, WW at that point, you had that feud going, and he leaves, and then obviously you had the big feud. It lasted over a year with Chris Benoit, and then it became almost like it was it was a real life kind of feud with you guys. But I remember Great American Bash '96 was awesome match. Uh, Bash of the Beach '97, which ended up being a retirement match for you, was awesome. Right. Clash of the Champions, you guys had great matches. It seemed like you guys legitimately were beating the hell out of each other because it was one of the best feuds I've ever seen. Because everyone we, thought it was real. Yeah, and we were being, uh, us, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we were laying them in. But everybody, the thing is, nobody knows, except some of my friends, we weren't together for over a year. I wasn't living there at home, and uh, I was living down the street. So our thing had disintegrated, but. Uh, uh, 
when he came, Chris, that that happened on its own. And I mean, I wasn't at home, and uh, but he was the best, one of the best I ever worked with. That's for sure. And I think that made him beat me. I think that angle made him. It certainly made him more recognizable than most guys on the card anyway. And we had the match of the year that year in Baltimore. Oh, man, I remember that match well. That match, it it got so crazy that you're like, man, these two legitimately hate each other. Were you guys laying them in for real or, or you know, we were laying on pretty good, but nothing to hurt one another. You know, not in the face, but with chops. I mean, he was chopping me. I was chopping him. Everything was pretty intense. But he became that way after he left us. He was very intense. So I think, you know, he he copied uh, the Dynamite Kid. I mean, there's pictures of him standing next to the Dynamite Kid when he first started, and they always look like brothers, same facial expression. I mean, the dive off the top rope was Dynamite, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So he really followed the kid closely, that's for sure. Now, a lot of people say that you, you know, I mean, obviously he had great matches in Japan. He had some good matches in WCW. He made a small imprint in ECW as well. But they said, you know, that feud put him on the map with you because, you know, it was very serious. And a lot of people say that your professionalism was through the roof because, you know, obviously with the whole Nancy thing and the woman that, you know, you see them saying, you know, right. quote unquote, solar. Like, how did you right. keep your professionalism, you know, through all that? Because that's kind of what you're lauded for. Everyone said, man, this guy went above and beyond to put this guy over. Yeah, and it was business, and I made him the world heavyweight champion. And then mm-hmm. they yep. left because they thought I was going to screw them. I didn't understand that. But uh, I, uh, business is business. And you don't try to think, make things personal. You know what I mean? It was something got turned around and they did what they wanted to do and it didn't affect me too much. But, uh, you know, it kind of affected his family. Because they had just had a baby, you know what I mean? And I didn't think that would happen. And I always kind of say, well, you know. So, yeah, he was great. He was a fantastic performer. Now, when you did become Booker and and you gave him the world title, was that in hopes that he wouldn't leave? Or was there like a grand plan with him as champion? Because obviously, you know, he's... He proved how, how obviously to do with you and so on and so forth, how good of a worker he was. So was there a plan with him as champ? And, and oh, yeah. He, okay. I had a plan with him as champ, and then I was going to have Nash beat him for the belt, and I was going to have him have a three-way um, run with Nash and Hall because those guys deserve to work at Nash and Hall. Hall would work could have worked with those guys easily, and Nash would have put uh, Benoit over, and if he had stayed and got to work with Nash, and after he loses, like I said, I'm a uh, heel booker, after he got beat up by Nash, I would have had him make a comeback and come back like he did when he was going to get to me. You know, when he's beating everybody with that cross face, and I had him do the same thing, and all I had to do was have Nash cap out, and that kid would have been made for the rest of the time. 
You know, hmm. a seven foot a seven foot guy, Captain Hong Fu guy, is five six. So. True, and obviously, yeah. you know, he wasn't the only one that left. Obviously, Saturn, uh, yeah. Eddie, Malenko, they left too. What was the thought process? They were just leaving because Benoit kind of talked him into leaving at that point. I think they got all got bad advice, and it wasn't Benoit. I mean, they got advice. I don't know from who, but they stirred themselves up. I had made eighty U.S. champion and cruiserweight champion, and also, you know, I also made them uh, uh, a number one contender with Flair. So I don't know what happened there, and I'm I was sorry to see them all leave. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, and. And did you think, you know, you obviously hear the head booker there at this point, but then they, then it's kind of the, um, well, it kind of around there before, but they had the the Russo era, you know, the Russo Ferrara era before that. Yeah. Do you think that getting rid of Bischoff, you know, in hindsight and bringing in Russo, do you think that was a big mistake on, on their part of WCW? Yeah. 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 Sure do. Sure do because uh, I'm not saying they were wrong, but it was a completely different philosophy and it didn't work there. So. Now, obviously, yeah. you know you, you were gone before the end of WCW. Were you, were you shocked to see WCW kind of go by the wayside and, and end in 2001? No, I knew AOL didn't want it. And I knew they were going to collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Were you shocked that it was bought by Vince and the WWE? No, no. He bought it in discount price, like something fishy about it. You know, he bought 30 years of $2 million of tapes. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we got to just uh, another, you know, it's so funny to say we keep going backwards, but we just, we missed something that I wanted to touch on. And we're, you know, not only big fans of the Florida Territory, but. We love Smoky Mountain, and your run in yes. Smoky Mountain is, is probably one of the high, or you know, I say one of the highlights. It's probably one of the best singulary runs for a singles performer because, my God, some of the bloody segments, yeah. matches, uh, my God, uh, for a territory like Smoky Mountain, uh, did you see it maybe not going as far as it could have? Uh, because, obviously, you know, we've talked to a lot of people with Smoky Mountain, people who have been in, and we spoke to uh, Jimmy Cornette himself, but did you think it had more potential than it actually uh, grew to? Because it was one hell of a promotion. It's funny that you said that. I just was on Jimmy's show this morning. Let me tell you okay. about Jimmy. Let me tell you about Jimmy. He had Knoxville, was his major town, and he had Johnson City, which only ran like once every three weeks. He was running spot shows. If he could have got Chattanooga, which was 100 miles west of Knoxville, if he could have got Cincinnati, which was 100 miles east, northeast, if he could have got Louisville, same, it's about 150 miles northeast, and if he could have got a town in Virginia, uh, maybe just any big town that he had that uh, wasn't being run. You know, there's a lot of towns up there like Fairfax and that highway 
I believe it's 61 that goes up there. There's a lot of big towns. If Jimmy could have secured those towns, he'd still be running. He just didn't have enough big towns. Right, exactly. And they hit yeah. like a certain point in Virginia, and they did go further north where then you're starting to head towards that uh, more populated area that really could have taken right. to it. But we, we always talk about the roster you know, and the fact the guys that came through there that are still, you know, actively in the business like Glenn Jacobs or even Al Snow, you know, with TNA still involved in the mix. Right. But the veterans that were there, you know, yourself and, and the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express, it was like a can't roster. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, and Jimmy ran it very well. And I always said I wish Jimmy was back in the business running. I like him and Heyman to run town, a territory together because they're diametrically opposed philosophy. But if you look at it, it comes first, full circle, and it connects. So, yeah. Yeah, and and the great thing about what you just said was that uh, one of the highlights of our interview with Cornette was that he said that him and Heyman would probably get along today because they all have the same enemies. So it's uh, it's kind of funny. They yeah. probably would make the master territory at this point because uh, they, I guess their philosophies might come together. But what's your highlight for Smoky Mountain? Because, I mean, some just amazing matches with, like, Brian Lee that, and the Singapore Spike. But what's your favorite at Smoky Moore, Mountain? Looking the, the Kenny Moore thing where when he opened his arm up, I stuck the spike in. People were horrified. You could see the tendons running. Oh. Did you know what I'm talking about? The Kenny Moore, yeah. the Japanese kid that came over. Oh my God! I I Please. just saw that recently. That yeah. is that is one of the most brutal uh, yeah. bludgeoning that's ever been recorded yeah. by a television camera. If you if you saw the return match, that was for FMW. We sent that over, and uh, they had a deal where for FMW, the wrestler of the year. It was between me and Ken Warner, and uh, he won, and he told me what to do, and I said, I wouldn't do this if I was you. He said, yes, please. The the award was in a glass case like you would a baseball, right, but it was bigger. I threw the case in his face, and it broke in his face. We shredded with broken glass, and he comes back, thank you, Sullivan, son. Thank you very much, Sullivan, son. I say, whoa. So, yeah, that was it. That was probably the match that stands out. Well, as we, as we start to uh, wind it down here a bit, you yeah. know, you've, you've had such a great career. It's unbelievable. I mean, not only in the ring, talking about booking as well, which is just awesome to get into, especially the meat of the WCW team, because, you know, for my money, it was the greatest booked league at that point that I've seen. And people will say, oh, Austin McMahon was better. I'll go NWO and Crow's thing and that era over anything I've seen. So it's just that, it's just awesome that you were you were the, you were the man behind the scenes for that. So that was awesome. But as far as wrestling goes, what is your yeah. favorite match or maybe a couple of favorite matches? One in particular I can remember from WCW was you and Cactus against the crazy T-Boys. I always love that match. But what's well, some, yeah, some of your favorites? I had an easy street fight that was with Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russell and Andre in Aloha Stadium, you know, that was a, a big one. And then uh, in Kuala Lumpur, I wrestled Mark Lund, 
when we had been partners for a long time. I wrestled him there. They had about 30,000 people. So I've had my share of uh, moments. So I enjoy uh, that everything that happened. I feel lucky and uh, blessed that this happened to me. Do you have a favorite opponent or maybe a couple of favorite opponents that you've had in your career? Because obviously we mentioned, you know, Benoit, you guys did some great chemistry. Yeah. You, and Dust, you and Dusty had some great Dusty chemistry. And Blackjack, uh, Dusty and Blackjack, I'd have to say. Because they're the guys that made me. Yeah. Yeah. Dusty and Blackjack. And do you have a favorite territory work? Because we didn't even get into, you know, your Memphis days, too, because obviously there was some yeah. wild stuff with Jerry Lawler and stuff. But do you have a favorite territory that you worked? Yeah, Florida was it. That was my home. Even when I was gone, I was always watching what was happening there. Yeah. Do you have a favorite part of, you know, Florida Championship Wrestling? Because that's so, you know, engrossed in, in, in you and kind of that the devil worshiping and everything else kind of played a big role in your career. No, I don't have a favorite part. Uh, Gordon Soley was just great to listen to, and he got things over so well. You can go back and to me, fuck anything with Gordon, it's a winner. That's definitely true. And how about as a booker? Do you have a favorite moment? Would it be, you know, booking the NWO and as successful as it was? I think one of my favorite moments was when there was 43,000 people in uh, Phillips Arena in Atlanta and Goldberg beat Hogan. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's one of the highlights uh, for WCW, no doubt. But, you know, I'd like to really end it with the the closer. The uh, the finish for the the main event question would be, when you close the book forever on wrestling uh, and what Kevin Sullivan brought to professional wrestling, what would you say your legacy is at the end of the day? I hope it was I brought a smile and believability and people could enjoy what I booked, that for a moment they could go back and say, is that real or is it Memorex? So hmm. that's it. Thank that's you, guys. Awesome. This was great. Oh no, it's it's great. I just wanted to uh, I wanted to say that uh, I'm just glad it wasn't you know that you really took it personally that you uh, you felt Hogan brought out his acting chops in those uh, those Dungeon of Doom vignettes. I thought that might have been your highlight. <laughs> no, but that came close. <laughs> <laughs> but please, before we let you go, just share uh, share with the listeners of our show uh, where they can find uh, Kevin Sullivan. Of course, they can find him on the MLW. Okay. Podcast Network, but share, please, anywhere else they can find the great Taskmaster. Well, you know, uh, Chris, let's set us up. You know, he found this, uh, I guess he he got one of those auctions where you get the storage stuff, and he found all kinds of memorabilia, but I don't have any memorabilia at all, and he found all kinds of tapes from Polynesian Pro Wrestling to uh, continental wrestling, and he has them on tapes. He's got T-shirts, he's got hats. I guess he's got T-shirt from WCW. He's got all kinds of stuff, and it's at Kevin Sullivan Booking at gmail dot com. Kevin Sullivan Booking at gmail dot com. So uh, yeah, our, our man Chris will definitely take care of you. Okay, yeah.
Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.